he was picked up by the police in Laodicea. And just like all political fugitives, he was put on a ship which would then follow the trade routes to the west. The ship would pass between Greece and the island of Crete, hugging the coast of the Mediterranean. Then he would move just south of the island, Sicily, up the west coast of Italia until he reached Rome itself. He would be unloaded from a ship in Rome and instantly be taken aback by a city larger than life. More people, more population, technology, more than he could have ever imagined. He smells the smells of the water trickling down the aqueducts, seeing this elaborate system of wells and fountains. He wonders why no one else had thought of this sooner. He passes by the market, the fresh-baked bread. It's not too long before he walks up the Capitoline Hill. This is the hill where the temples to the gods of the entire Greek pantheon exist. He's looking up at structures that are larger than life. Their architecture is more great than he could ever imagine. But the sights and smells of this beautiful city wouldn't last long because he would be ushered through the Capitoline Hill to this repurposed cistern. It was once a cistern holding water, but now it's been repurposed as a prison cell for those who would be waiting trial and most probably execution for the crime of treason. It's there in the Mamertine prison that he would be escorted through a series of hallways and rooms. And the prison isn't a door that would open to a cell, it's a hole in the bottom of the ground. He would be put in chains and lowered slowly through the hole into the darkness. He waits for his eyes to adjust to the darkness, but they don't because there is no light. The smell of fresh bread is long gone. It's just the smell of urine and excrement down in this hole. He would find his way bumping and tripping along other prisoners who were laying around on the ground and he would find his way to a spot on the wall that seemed as sanitary as possible. At least it's a little dry over in the corner. He would slink down in the corner and do what he always did in situations like this. He would begin to pray. But something unusual happens down in that dungeon this day. Across the cell, way on the other side of the room, echoing through the entire Mamertine prison, comes a familiar voice and some familiar songs. He hears it for the first time. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? He pauses for a moment. My help comes from the Lord. It's a familiar voice. It's a familiar song, but it can't be. There's no way they haven't seen each other for years. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? On this day in this prison, he has nothing to lose. So he yells into the darkness, Paul! Paul, is that you? What? He hears in the distance, Paul! Paul, is that you? It is. Paul! Paul, one Saul from Tarsus? Yeah, it's me, who, who is it out there? Paul, it's Epaphras. Epaphras, no, no way. No, it, it, how do I know it's you? Don't, don't, no, Paul, it's me. Don't you remember the time when we met in Ephesus? 
You discipled me there, and, and, then, and then you went this way, and I went that way. No, I bet, where are you? Get over here. The two would embrace excitement in their souls. See, it's Paul and Epaphras. We know Paul. We don't know a lot about Epaphras. Epaphras met Saul in Ephesus, comes to be a man of faith, finds this Jesus that got a hold of Paul. Jesus gets a hold of Epaphras. The two minister faithfully in Ephesus until they both decide it's time to spread the gospel. Paul would go to Macedonia. Epaphras would go to Laodicea, Hierapolis, and then back to his hometown of Colossae. And the two would not reunite until they both through separate routes end up in Rome on trial for preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. The two would embrace. We know that Epaphras and Paul would share stories and Epaphras would tell him about the way that faith is spread in Laodicea and Hierapolis and he's most excited about his hometown of Colossae. It would be Epaphras who tells him about the new faith of these Christians, the way that God's got a hold of them and that the name of Jesus is spreading in Colossae. It would be Epaphras who says to Paul, hey, I know our time is short and we don't really know what the future holds or how many more days we have here, but I know you've got a couple of scrolls left and I was wondering if you could send one of those letters to my church in Colossae and Paul would oblige and he would take his pen and he would write the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And he would pen the words, I haven't stopped praying for you ever since I've heard about your faith. And we've just thanked God over and over. And though we are chained, the gospel is not. And it continues to spread because of people like you. And I can only imagine it's when Paul gets to what we call verse 15, he takes a deep breath breath and then pours his soul into these words one Colossians 1 15 to the church in Colossae the son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for in him thing all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. <clears throat> he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconcile all things uh, to himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What do you tell a church who is watching their pastors get persecuted, hauled away, and executed? What do you tell a church when the world beneath them is shifting and sinking just like quickstand? What do you tell a group of people who walk their kids to school and they pass temples where orgies happen to prostitutes and these Greek gods all take place? What do you tell a church who's living in perilous times? You tell them how big their savior is. And you guys, that's what I want to do today. 
Where are we at? Colossians 1. Paul himself did not actually go to Colossae. Epaphras did. Epaphras gets sent to the same prison as Paul. It is there that he would tell Paul about the faith of the people in Colossae, the perils they're going through. It is Paul who would pick up a pen and write him a letter. And the words he chooses, he simply chooses to lift up the name of Jesus and remind these people who their Savior is and how the entire world is under his authority. In these words, we get powerful theology about Jesus, not just teacher, not just savior, but king of the universe. Let me unpack these with you. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God's love. He is God's power. And he is God's glory with skin on. It says, for him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, authorities, principles, all things have been created through him and for him. It means he was there at the conception of the universe. The billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars, and we keep finding more, and it appears that there is no end to the billions, yet he knows each one of them. The 20 billion pieces of data held in one single human chromosome. He knows them. The future of AI, self-driving cars, neuroscience, and renewable energy. Yeah, he knows those things. Not just science, but it says elections are under his authority. Systems are under his authority. Global economics is under his authority. It says all things have been created through him and for him. And one day all things will be made right by him. My question is, what would happen in your life if these words became a reality to you? You know, I find it interesting that when you look through scripture and I look through the world today, it is often the least likely people who lay hold of these words the quickest. We see it in scripture. There's another great faith tale, another great King Jesus tale from Matthew chapter eight. You get into this passage and it says that Jesus is teaching and he'd entered a town called Capernaum and it says a centurion came to him. Hold on, we'll come back to that. Asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lives at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Now, centurion is now underlined. Why? Because centurions didn't ask people for help back in this time. They told people what to do. The centurion is the the picture of self-sufficiency, autonomy, and having it all under control. A centurion, not to mention, is the tip of the spear, very literally, when it comes to the Roman or oppression and occupation of the Jewish land. And this centurion comes walking through this crowd that's surrounding Jesus. You better believe the crowd was parting. People wanted to know what was happening. And no one was expecting this man to ask Jesus for help. But this crowd would part and this man would walk through probably with a couple of other armed guards on his left and his right. And he would walk up to Jesus and everybody would be looking and people in the back would be asking what's going on up there. And they'd be saying, he just asked Jesus for help. And everybody, I mean everybody, the disciples, the women following Jesus, the crowds and masses would want to see how Jesus was going to treat this man who had treated them so poorly. It says in verse 7, Jesus said to him, Shall I come heal him? Then the centurion 
says words that would actually shock Jesus himself. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes. That one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. I remember growing up as a young man, most of my early uh, working life was with my father in construction. We did hardwood floors. In my town in the 90s, they were building tons of new homes. So it was very common for me to go to some new construction site and work the day there. I loved it. I loved seeing the different crews come through. I love the camaraderie of the job site. I love the smell of sawdust mixed with cigarettes. I can't help it. It's a part of me. Now, here's what I remember. Every now and then, there'd be crews, you know, the electrician's doing his thing, we're working on floors, painters are in the kitchen, and we're all trying to stay coordinated and move and sink and get our jobs out of the way and out of there and onto the next one. And every now and then, the contractor would come, and you could always tell who the contractor was. And it wasn't just because they were the ones who wore Doc Martens instead of Red Wings and Tommy Hilfiger jeans instead of Carhartts. You could always tell the contractor because he was the one on the job site that everyone wanted to talk to. He knew the comings and goings. He knew when people were getting paid and when they weren't. He knew what was next and when the next house was going to be built. See, he had an authority and it was easy to look at him and observe that because of who he was and what his position was, that there was a certain authority that he carried. Well, the Roman soldier has been watching Jesus from afar and he sees the same thing. And essentially, he says to Jesus, Jesus, I've been watching you and I know how authority works. I'm in charge of soldiers. I tell them go there and they go there, come here and they come here. And I understand it's not because of me, but because an authority has been given to me by Rome. I've been watching you and you tell the wind and the seas what to do. You tell disease what to do. You tell the laws of physics what to do. And it must be because of the authority that's been given to you. Jesus looks back at this man and it says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This man shocked and amazed Jesus. How? Because he had grasped he had laid hold of, and he had recognized the power and the authority held by King Jesus. My question is, have you? My question is, if I looked at your life closely, your day-to-day -day moments, not just your church experiences, but the way you live your life on a day-to-day -day basis, would it reflect the fact that Jesus is both king of your life and Lord of the entire universe. I mean, think about it like this. This is the central claim of our faith. Jesus is my Lord and savior. He loves me and he is king of the universe and everything is under his control. You get that? I mean, if you say I am a Jesus follower, I, I was baptized, I've given my life to him, I am Christian, this is what you believe. This is being a person of faith. This is following Jesus. It's acknowledging he's my Lord and Savior, he loves me, he's king of the universe, and everything is under his control. Okay, that's the central claim of our faith. I'm asking you, is your life consistent with this idea? 
When COVID happened in March and the news starts to swell about this virus that's coming and is now here, did your life reflect the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, he loves you, and everything on earth is under his control? When I look at the span of your concern and the things that raise your blood pressure, when the, the things that really make you uncomfortable, angry, upset, the things that make you anxious, the way you sleep at night, do, does the span of your concern reflect the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, he loves you, he's the king of the universe, and everything is under his control? Is this the guiding principle of your life? Do the Parts and pieces, do your mannerisms, the way you treat people, the way you react to what you see on cable news, the, the, the different parts and pieces, the span of your worry, the, the way you sleep at night, reflect the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, he loves you, he's king of the universe, and everything is under his control. Because this is what responding to King Jesus looks like. My friends, what do we do with this? Here's my word, don't shrink your Savior. You wanna, you wanna, give the world a view of a Jesus who is worthy, a God who is capable, somebody who is really worthy of following. You cannot shrink your savior by diving into petty life issues that make him look small. If I say to my children, I am a Jesus follower, and they see me obsess over my lawn, yelling at children when they pass through, the two will not eventually make sense. When I tell my children, hey, in this family, we follow Jesus, but we gossip about petty things that happen as the school year resumes on the PTA board, we shrink our savior because they're going, how could my parents think that Jesus is king of the universe and concern themselves with something this small? When I take my finances as if they are my own, I wrap my arms around them like they are my hope and I sweat over every paycheck and how everything is going, I shrink my savior. Because my kids or those watching me will eventually say, you believe Jesus is the king of the universe, but you work like you are. My friends, he is exalted. He is on his throne. He is not concerned or consumed by what's on the news right now. He is King Jesus, and there is no one like him. You know, I'll tell you, I meet so many people who want to overcome anxieties, fears, being consumed by what's coming next, the uncertainty of the future. And we miss the fact that it lays right here. See, we resist lordship, but we often forget it is that very lordship that brings us to places of freedom and health. Here's the phrase, you want something you can do with this. Write this down. This is where you screen, grab the two ends of your phone and screenshot. Command shift four if you're watching on an Apple computer. Uh, just take a picture of your TV if it's on TV right here. But this is the phrase, what I trust to Jesus by doing it Jesus' way is protected by his power and authority. What you trust to Jesus. How do I trust something to Jesus? Do I say, Jesus, I trust you? No. Do I do, I do a seance in my backyard and burn something in a fireplace? No. How do I show that I trust Jesus with a part or piece of my life? I do that part or piece of my life Jesus's way. I bring it under his lordship. And the things I do, I can rest assured, are now underneath the power and protection of his authority. Okay, if you're a chart person or a visual person like me, let me help you out. 
Now, there's all these parts of my life and yours. Relationships, romance, marriage, finance, children, future, savings, recreation. All of these different things matter to me. I want good relationships. I want a hot marriage full of romance. I want my finances, children, future, savings, career, recreation, rest, all to go well. But what I need to understand, it is only when I bring them, let me show you the Lordship of Christ. This is Jesus' authority, care, and protection. It's only when I bring these things, for example, say my future, under his authority, care, and protection, is my future truly safe. But notice the relationship here. See, without putting these parts of my life under his authority, I cannot expect care and protection. I can't say to Jesus, this is mine, not yours. Could you also protect it, please? No, true freedom, true safety and security is found in putting the different parts of my life underneath the authority of Jesus because then they experience his care and protection. You want your future to be secure. You want your marriage to be secure, your children and your finances to be secure. Can I tell you something? The safest place for them is under the authority of King Jesus because it is there that they are underneath his care. So let me tie it all together. Here, here's what you do. I often find a counselor of mine introduced me to this idea of the seventh slice. You go, well, what the heck is that, Matt? And he explained it to me like this. What I find is that people often, very naturally, especially people of faith, trust most of their lives to Jesus. You know, I had that list, and don't worry about it, we, we can leave these here, but that list had the relationships, romance, marriage, finance, children, future savings, recreation rest. He said, I find most of the time, everybody is willing to give God those first six. Pretty easy. But for you and for me, there is the seventh slice of our life. And that's the one that we're so tempted to hang on to. Maybe growing up, you didn't have a lot. And when it comes to that idea of your finances being in Jesus's care, you gotta hold on. And yeah, you like the idea of trusting God for your future and your security, but it is so hard for you to let go of what you have. Oh, maybe in a romantic relationship, you, you got burned one time and now you're in a relationship. It's not a godly relationship, but at least you're not alone, but you know it is not what you were made for. You're hanging on to that one last piece. My question is, what is that last slice of your life that you haven't given to Jesus yet? My challenge for you is that you would consider doing just that. Because here's what we've just learned today. Jesus is in control. He is in command. Every last part of your life and mine is under his authority. See, that in fact is the safest place we could be. So here's my challenge today. What is that slice? And what does it look like for you to offer that to God? today. What is that slice for you? And what is it like to offer that to, to God today? I want you to consider that, and I'm going to pray as we end. God and Father, um, today we just acknowledge that there's no one like you. We're, we're thankful to have a Savior who, who, who is at the same time soft and tender, but at the same time ferocious and strong. Or we're happy to have a Savior who is full of grace and compassion, but at the same time will not be messed with. 
And God, we just embrace all of Jesus today, saying we need you. God, I pray for people who, who are yet to trust him with that last part of their life, that you would continue to loosen a grip on the things that keep us from your care and protection. God, that you would embolden people to make moves of trust towards Jesus even this week. So together, we lay hold of what it means to truly trust you as our Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.